I guess we're back with the Financially Independent Podcast, the episode 34 with Rob Berger, deputy editor at Forbes. Uh, it seems, Rob, that like you have multiple careers, uh, at least uh, from looking at your profile. Um, do you mind introducing yourself to the, to the audience and uh, maybe explain your background um, before we sure. go into our topics? Yeah, happy to. And thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, so I am a deputy editor at Forbes, uh, which I, it's a position I've had for two years. Uh, to make a long story short, I was a trial attorney in Washington, D.C. for 25 years. I started a personal finance blog more as a hobby. That turned into a business, and it allowed me to retire from the practice of law when I was like about 49, I guess. Uh, I, I continued to run that full time, ended up selling it. Uh, and kind of was done. I'm retired. It was, I was 51. It was two years ago. I look a lot older than I am, but in any event, uh, sold it. And um, I'd written for Forbes for a number of years. They, they wanted my help with something with part of the website. So they asked me if I'd come on. So I did that and um, also had a chance to publish my book, uh, Retire Before Mom and Dad, during that time. And then actually just recently have gone part-time at Forbes. So I'm just working a handful of hours each week. And just kind of right now, not doing a whole lot, but have some plans for some things uh, down the road. My goal is to retire at least six or seven more times. <laughs> uh, we'll see how that goes. So that's, yeah, that's my background in a nutshell. Very important question. Are you working from home as well? Yes. Yeah. Well, even before COVID, I worked from home. So uh, Forbes is headquartered uh, just outside of Manhattan and I'd go up there once or twice a month, but yeah, I've worked it from home really since retiring from the practice of law. So in some ways, you know, the COVID hasn't changed my life as much as I know it's affected a lot of other people. Yeah. It seems, it seems like a lot of us are going to be doing what you have been doing for some time, uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Yeah, I know that for me and, uh, and Bill here that basically we changed to that, I think, since March, the beginning of March. Mm -hmm. And March. Uh, and doesn't really um, impact your productivity, I think, at least in my case, if, if you're if you're able, if you're doing stuff uh, online, if you're digital mostly. And uh, these days, a lot of startups, a lot of companies are doesn't change much, I guess. But um, no, and it's a, it's kind of an unfortunate reality that COVID's affected different groups of people differently. So, I mean, if you're in the retail or the travel or entertainment business, it's obviously had a huge effect on your lives. But for folks in the, the knowledge industries and you know, can sit behind a computer and do their work, you know, not as, not as much, which I guess is a good thing, but uh, certainly it's not had an equal effect on, on everyone. Yeah, and, and I come uh, from... Uh, touristy uh, country Montenegro so we're like next to Italy and we highly depend on uh, tourism so sure. I think we're gonna feel it big time even though we're currently uh, COVID free um, it's still tough to get people in because uh, you don't want to get a new outbreak and everything so uh, I want to ask you how did you get into finance um, how come as a attorney what, what started your uh, journey as a, as a in finance well, you know, I was always the person in our home that managed the finances uh, and handled all the investments, which includes 
you know, your typical stock bond, mutual funds, but also we owned some real estate uh, at various times. And, and so it was always an interest of mine. And then my practice of law I at one point went into the securities industry. I, was, I worked in the government um, at, at, an, at an entity called the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which regulates the auditors of publicly traded companies. And so all of that kind of came together. And in 07, I started a personal finance blog, really just because it was, it was of interest to me. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and it just, you know, kind of blossomed quite unexpectedly into something more than a hobby. And kind of just one thing led to another, you know, I was doing some work with MSN money, and then of course, Forbes. And, and so kind of one thing led uh, okay. to another, but that's kind of how it happened. And I see today you also have your YouTube channel, right? Where you talk about different topics and... Uh... Yeah, I started a YouTube channel. The idea behind it was to primarily do screencasts where, you know, I can create a video of what's going on on my computer screen as I talk about investing topics so people can actually see what I'm doing. So like, for example, now I'm working on a series related to Morningstar.com and how you can use that to evaluate mutual funds ETFs, stocks, and then also your portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's the plan for the YouTube channel. It's not really a business. It's kind of like how I started the initial blog. It's really more of a hobby at this point. Mm -hmm. But if it can help some people, then, you know, that, that's great. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I know definitely that um, the Ray Dalio and these uh, big hedge fund names, they, they were doing something similar with basically creating a presentation and then you explain what's going on. And, and I feel at least for me, it helped a lot while I was watching those videos. So I think definitely that's, that's something that can help um, people. And I think when you visualize something, it makes it easier than uh, if you just listen to it. But right. I hope this podcast helps as well. Um, and, well, so, and podcasts will help. I mean, and your podcast, you know, I had a podcast, I still do the podcast for Dole Roller. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's a, definitely a place for podcasts in personal finance and investing for sure. Um, but yeah, I think the video can add another dimension to it and for some topics. And just to the listeners, Dole Do Roller is your website, right? Well, Dole Roller is the site that I sold. Mm -hmm. uh, I still do the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in terms of my own site now, it's just robberger.com. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where, you know, I, I'm currently publishing content. Um, but yeah, I still do the Dole Roller Money podcast. I, we, we release, I think, usually about two episodes a month. Hmm. And, and, and you mentioned, mentioned you want to retire at least two or three, six or seven times more. Yeah. Would you go back into law at some point or would you just do the same or are you basically sick of it? Yeah, yeah. I have no desire to go back into the practice law. And it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. You know, I had sort of the big firm, I worked for an international firm at the beginning and end of my career. And then in the middle, I worked for the government and I enjoyed it, but I, yeah, I have no desire. That's a whole, I mean, I'm happy to go into as much detail on that as you want, but you know, the practice of law is, um, it's good and bad. Uh, uh, it depends what you're doing, but uh, yeah, I have no desire to go back to, to big law. Yeah. More over to finance than maybe yeah. other, other channels too. Yeah, this is a little motivation for all the, all the, all the future lawyers. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I wanted to be a lawyer. I decided to be a lawyer in eighth grade is when I decided and I, you know, I, I did it. And I, like I said, I enjoyed it, but you know, it's a tough, it's a tough racket, uh, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, right now I prefer just working on my, at my own pace. I can do some writing. I can, like you said, do a YouTube video or a podcast. 
and it, you know, I, I just like that flexibility. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a very good luxury to have. They, they say that the practice of law would be great if you didn't have to deal with clients. So, uh, yeah, I don't have to deal with clients. So that's good. Um, so yeah, I, I, we wanted to discuss capital markets today. Um, we want to discuss, first of all, what, what's your personal opinion on this kind of a diverging outlook for the markets versus the economy and, uh, um, what do you think about it? Um, what do you think may, might be the, the reason? And uh, do you see it as uh, um, the markets being the, uh, the forward-looking machine versus the economy being the kind of the present? And uh, how do you think it will uh, diverge in the future? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And to answer it, I guess I need to kind of talk about my perspective on all this. So I absolutely never make an investment decision on some view of what the market's going to do, you know, this month, next month. I mean, you know, if in January, I could have, who would have predicted that we would have a global pandemic and the market would be down 30 some percent. And then in the, in the midst of all of that, who would predict that a month and a half later, it'd be back to even for the year, right? Uh, and who knows what it's going to have happen by the end of the year. I have no clue. Uh, I think the markets attempt to be forward looking, right? Um, it's not what happened this quarter. It's what investors think will happen next quarter and next year. Uh, we're, we're not particularly all that good at knowing that, but uh, we try. And right now, to me, uh, the reason the equity markets have come back, I think, generally, is because you know we've got, I think, positive news on COVID, right? We're, we're, we're certainly over the difficult part for now, whether it gets worse again in next winter, for example, who knows? Um, and so business is starting to open back up. Uh, but, but the other part of it that I don't think as many people are talking about is that interest rates are just historic lows. And so when interest rates are low, asset values are high. It's just, that's just, you know, I mean, if interest rates were, if you snapped your fingers in the 10 year treasury was at 5%, <laughs> the equity markets would fall significantly and fast. Um, but that's not the case. So it's like money has nowhere else to go, right? I mean, people, some people want to buy gold, whatever. I'm not a gold, fa gold fan, but that's another topic, I suppose. But, you know, there's only so many places your money can go right now. And who, and, and who wants to put it in treasuries that are making under, you know, 100 basis points? Uh, so, you know, when you look at the interest rate, um, the interest rates right now, it makes sense to me that equity markets are doing what they're doing. Um, that's my take. I mean, we're obviously, so I don't know how old you guys are. I know I'm older than you. <laughs> I remember in 1982 earning 16% on a six month CD and being scared to lock it in for five years for fear that interest rates would go even higher. So that's a perspective that I think a lot of folks don't have and when I look at interest rates today, I assume they're going to go up. I just don't know when, right? Mm -hmm. And when they do, asset values, you know, all other things being equal, which they never are, but all other things being equal, they'll go down. Right now, they're low, equity values are up. It just, you know, I think it's just kind of where we are. Yeah, I would just like to add that that's, that makes perfect sense. And we have these other kind of factors with, um, with the quantitative easing that's coming in and the Fed buying assets and uh, kind of if sometimes they can, uh, I mean, our experience, we are very young, we're 20, 25, 26. 
So this is kind of the first downturn that we're they were living through. But uh, going through the literature and whatever, even after two thousand eight, um, kind of the interest rates went from zero to two point five. But then still, the equity markets ballooned because of all these quantitative easing. Um, and yeah, and, and having Trump and lower taxes and everything. So it's- it's Absolutely a part of it. I mean, part of it in the sense that lower taxes increase corporate profits, right? Um, and yeah, coming out of the 08 crisis, you know, you had stocks that were a lot less expensive, uh, mm -hmm. certainly than they are today. And so that certainly had an effect. And in terms of the Fed, you know, their actions are certainly keeping interest rates low, right? And um, there's no inflation to speak of, which to me is still a bit of a mystery. I'll be honest with you. I don't know that I can fully explain that mm -hmm. other than I don't believe it can continue that way forever. Um, but when you have such low inflation and low rates, um, yeah, I think the equity markets are behaving, I'll, I'll call it rationally, mm. in that environment. Well, would you say that this divergence between what the market currently looks like and the bad earnings season is not yet out but at the same time the stock market is going up and going up and going up it's just a result of investing easy investing is at hand to everybody is easily available for everybody and then more and more people are doing uneducated investments and that's why the stock price are just artificially inflated but then might it might be a bubble we might approach a bubble with this yeah i don't really see the market as a bubble personally, given interest rates, mm -hmm. right? Given the interest rates, I, I, I don't, I'm not suggesting I think the market is cheap. I just, I, I wouldn't call it a bubble given interest rates. Now that doesn't mean it can't go down and go down quickly and as we've seen. Um, uh, but I also don't think it's a function of the knowledge of investors. I don't think that's really much different than frankly it's, um, it's ever been. I think investors know that Q2 earnings are going to be dreadful, at least for a lot of industries. I think that's kind of already baked in. I think the thing is, is that they see that as a temporary thing. Not that Q3, that the third quarter will be back to normal. I don't think anyone thinks that. But I think the market right now is, is thinking, look, we're going to have a couple of bad quarters. Second quarter, probably going to be really ugly. Um, Uh, but if, as long as COVID doesn't get worse, businesses will open up, unemployment will come back down and things will sort of, you know, they're not going to just go back to the way they were quickly, but they're going to be heading in that direction. And again, what, where else are you going to put your money right now? Um, yeah. Now, having said that, it's interesting that Warren Buffett and he was, Fisher criticized him, which I thought was silly. Um, But, uh, you know, he's sitting on what, 100 and almost 40 billion in cash. Mm -hmm. And, and some, some have criticized him to say, look, the reason he hasn't, he didn't take advantage of the, the market uh, over the last month or so was because he's old, he's getting old. <laughs> well, he is old, that's true. Um, but, I, you know, to me, uh, he sees that we're still in fairly unstable times. Even with the market rebound, even with COVID in the right direction, there's a lot of um, bad things that can happen over the next year, particularly if COVID takes another turn for the worse. And I just don't see Buffett as someone who's in a hurry. He'll, he'll find the right investments in time and do what he always does in my view. Anyway, I don't mean yeah, to go uh, off on another, another question, but. No, but just to make a point, it's, it's a great point. And I would, I would just say that 
a lot of people maybe don't understand the difference between the trader and an investor, um, which is Warren Buffett is an investor who's probably looking long-term as yourself, as you mentioned, that you're not looking for a swing and he's probably not looking to profiteer from a swing and short-term uh, kind of volatility, but look into the future and see, okay, why, what might, um, in, in any case, what might be untouchable? Uh, is it Domino's Pizza that we have another wave? Domino's Pizza is still selling because they don't have any delivery. Is it Ubers? Is it whatever, you know? Um, so. Yeah, and he also might be wanting to buy a private company, right? I mean, that's one mm -hmm. of the advantages that he has. And one of the reasons I like Berkshire mm -hmm. as an investment uh, to some extent, not, not in place of, but in addition to large cap mutual funds, mm -hmm. which only invest in the public markets, right? But he can invest, he can buy private companies. Uh, and so, you know, that may be his, his, his druthers, right? Because obviously when he owns it, he controls the cash flow. Um, so, and there may be other tax benefits, I su suspect, I don't know. But in any event, you know, he could be waiting for that kind of opportunity. And, you know, $140 billion is both a blessing and a curse, right? right? We've got to find a good investment that's big enough to matter to a company like that. Right. And, and as you mentioned that there is, um, I mean, if you just think about uncertainty in the markets, you can have a second wave of COVID. Um, you can have a change in the White House. You can have increased taxes. You can have... Um, I don't know, hyperinflation in a year due to all the money printing. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going to happen. Yeah. And yeah. all these combinations can be different, right? And then yeah. give a different result. Um, I want to ask you, why not, why not the gold guy? Why, why don't you uh, like gold as an investment? Uh, so I'm not a big fan of uh, investments that don't have what I would call intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. um, right? I mean, as Warren Buffett has said, you dig it up in Africa, you ship it over here and you bury it in the ground. Um, it, it, you know, it's, I understand the theory behind it. It's a hedge against inflation. Some would say maybe it's not quite that. The other thing is, is for me to have, for, for, for even if I, even if I accept the, the notion that it's a hedge against inflation, for it to have a significant impact on my portfolio, I'd have to own a fair amount of it. You know, I, there's no point in owning 3% of gold. I mean, what's that going to do for me? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it, it doesn't, I, there's no way for me to value it. Uh, I can't look at future cash flows from gold because there aren't any, right? Um, uh, so, yeah, I just don't see it as a productive asset. But yeah. By the way, the same would be absolutely true of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, some folks can and will make a lot of money off of these types of investments because there's a market for them. And so there's going to be wild price swings. And we saw that particularly with Bitcoin, right? Uh, uh, some time ago, but I have no way of knowing how to harness that, how to, you know, it's, 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 some people think they've got skill in that regard. And I think, no, they probably don't, but there's going to be any number of people that are lucky. And so, you know, it's no, in my mind, it's really no, not much different than winning the lottery, which yeah. you may have, you may have listeners that are not going to send me hate mail. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of investing in something that doesn't have any intrinsic value. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, for, from my perspective on cryptocurrencies is that uh, I did, I did a cup, I worked for a company that was in cryptocurrencies. Um, and from my personal experience, I've seen, I've seen a couple of, uh, um, roads that it might go down and which might actually generate some value um 
One of them might be for banks and currency transfer instead of holding an account, an account in, in a foreign country, in foreign currency, you can use, I think, um, uh, Monero or one of these uh, currencies that basically make it easier to send money from bank to bank and intra-bank transfers and stuff like this. But yeah, I think nobody is um, sure exactly what the value of Bitcoin is. Uh, and many um, investors recommend like 1% uh, uh, diversity in the portfolio by, by Bitcoin because if if all goes to hell, uh, Bitcoin will go. <laughs> That's their well, assumption, I suppose. But but the irony is, is if 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 a, if if a cryptocurrency, Bitcoin or whatever, actually became a currency, traders would lose interest because you can't you can't have a currency that swings in value like that, right? Yeah. Um, uh, it d- doesn't work that way. You need stability, in which case it's no longer a fun a fun play for a trader. Um, but yeah, in any event, I, that's always been my view. Now I can remember writing about Bitcoin when I think one Bitcoin was like 19 cents or something. And I, I do wish I would have hooked up my computer and started mining back then, but, uh, you know, who, who would have guessed? And even if I had, there's no way I would have waited until it was trading at what 20 grand or whatever it was at the top. I would have been excited when I could sell it for $3, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, it looks like it proved to be useful, at least in short term in these countries where there was hyperinflation. So people could quickly, um, I don't know, uh, transfer their pesos to, 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 to Bitcoin and save their, save their savings or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a murky area still. Um, and there's a lot of disagreement, I guess, uh, in the markets with regards to, to Bitcoin. But um, yeah, the more interesting thing is blockchain, I think, and I'm no expert on blockchain to me, but that, that's the more interesting technology. And I know at Forbes, they write a lot about blockchain and crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they cover that extensively, but not certainly not my area of expertise. Yeah, same, same here. Not, not my area of expertise, but uh, yeah, definitely. And, and they're a little bit connected. And I think also there's a lot of, um, I know that China and US are the ones that are involved and I, I it's definitely not in the United States interest to make this a currency. <laughs> I would say uh, if you look at the dollar and uh, I see that in China, they have different pushes to make it their national currency, but you never know what their government is going to do. And uh, it's a kind of, um, it's a weird situation. One, one thing you can almost always count on is that governments, and this is true of any entity, they don't want to give up their power. Uh, however, they've acquired it, <laughs> whether yep. it's by vote or by gun. And, um, so that usually can tell you what they're going to do with things like cryptocurrency. If they yeah. can somehow harness it and control it, but they're certainly not going to cede power to the people. Um, I also want to ask you, what do you think that, do you also think that one thing that might be contributing to the rise of the U S market is also the increase of risk um, in the world in general? Like if you're living in Brazil or somewhere, I think that the, the possibility that Brazil is handling this very badly, or if you have Argentina that's defaulting on their debt, um, do you think that maybe that the risk, rising risk uh, in, in emerging markets, and uh, we know that all they they all had, not all, but a lot of them had a lot of debt denominated in U.S. currency. Do you think that this is one of the reasons why maybe investors are moving, or? Well, when they have debt denominated in U.S. currencies, that poses other risks for them, right? Pretty significant. Um, we saw that what in the late nineties, um, uh, not in Brazil, but, um, you know, I, I, certainly when investors flock to say treasuries, for example, mm-hmm. for safety, right. 
I mean, it's going to, it's going to increase the price, drop the yield. That's going to affect markets for sure. I've not looked at fund flows to know and put a cause and effect on it. If um, fear or uncertainty and say um, emerging markets is driving something now that's more significant than normal. Uh, so I can't, I really can't speak to that. Um, but you know, the United States is still seen at the moment to some extent as a safe haven for, you know, for, for assets. Um, and obviously, uh, there's a lot of assets that, as you pointed out, are, are bought and sold in U.S. dollars, not just debt, obviously, but other things like commodities. Um, and that helps us in many ways. Uh, I know there are others that are trying to change that, and we'll see what history or what the future holds for us. Um, but in terms of like evaluating flows into these assets from, say, emerging markets, it's just not something I focused on. Hmm. And you said you're an investor yourself and you're looking more of a kind of a longer term period, right? Um, yes. And as you make your investments, what, what is your opinion of, let's say, five to 10 year prospect? What, what, if, if you have one, you know? Well, I don't have a, I don't have a sense, like I, I don't have any sort of prediction of like what the S&P 500 is going to do. I mean, if, if I were going to guess, I would say the next five to 10 years will be um, pretty flat just because of valuations, particularly if interest rates rise. Uh, I, I do look at certain industries. I mean, most of our investments are just in broadly diversified index funds. Yeah, I do own some companies. I've owned Apple for a long time. And I tend to buy Apple. Every now and again, the market sort of freaks out about Apple. Mm -hmm. You know, their iPhone sales drop a little bit one quarter in the, you know, in the, in the price tanks. It hasn't happened recently, but it happened... In 2018, I think 20, maybe beginning of 2019, I bought some shares at like 142, I think. Um, Where the fair, fair, fair value of profit? Yeah, I bought some at one in the 160s, and then in, in 2013, I bought it split adjusted like 56. So I look at opportunities like that. Um, uh, more recently, I've been bullish on banks. Mm -hmm. uh, Mainly, it's just a, a valuation play. I don't have any prediction as to how banks will perform over the next 12 months. One could make the argument that they're going to struggle some, right? Because people aren't working, businesses aren't open, so people aren't getting getting loans, they're not paying back loans, mortgage issues. But long term, uh, you know, their balance sheets are very strong. Uh, they're much more secure, say, than they were 10 years ago or 12 years ago. Um, and their valuations are quite low. So it seems to me like a reasonable uh, investment when you're thinking at least 10 years or more. So I, I look at um, industries that way and try to invest in things that I, I, I can at least try to convince myself that I understand. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's outside of index funds. I own Apple, I own Berkshire, and then I own um, a few banks. Yeah, and Berkshire is pretty cheap right now, I think. Um, well, I'm not sure if I would call it cheap, um, but I think it's certainly not over. I think it's fairly valued. I mean, Berkshire gets harder and harder to evaluate for me personally, just because it, it becomes a much more complicated company to evaluate in some ways. And I don't have, I, you know, some, one of the things is you have to understand your limitations. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm just not capable of doing is truly understanding a company like Berkshire's insurance risk. Right, because it has uh, has a lot of 
um, capital and insurance industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that's, that may be also one reason why Buffett holds on to so much cash. Um, you know, the, there could be a catastrophic event. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's reasonably valued. Mm -hmm. And um, it's certainly an extremely tax-efficient investment to hold since it doesn't pay a dividend. And, um, and I like going to the annual meetings. So I, owning shares allows me to do that. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, do, you, do you personally have uh, certain industries that you focus on? Well, lately it's been banking, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's probably my main one. Um, and I don't, I don't really spend a lot of time drilling down deep into other industries or specific investments. Part of my approach on the, on the individual stock side of my portfolio is it's a very focused um, investment. I mean, you know, on the, you know, two, well, just, yeah, just two companies probably represent 10 or 15% of my portfolio. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not looking to own 30 companies. Um, right. uh, again, 85% of the portfolio is index funds, but the other 15 is principally two companies. And, you know, I think that kind of focused approach is the right one for me. If I were going to put all of my money in individual stocks, I would own more than two, but I probably wouldn't own more than five or six. Um, yeah. There's not enough time in the day to, to, to really intelligently own 30 companies in my view. Yeah, you would have to analyze all of them and uh, understand their businesses to the core in order to put that amount of money. Um, yeah, and, and, and also, I, eventually you get to the point where you might as well just buy an S&P 500 index. Exactly, because they move together anyway. So, Yeah, particularly if you're buying large cap. You know, if you're owning Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and I don't know how big Facebook is now, but, you know, and Apple, at some point, you know, you're pretty much highly correlated to, to an index. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I want to ask you: Do you ever uh, do you have any opinion with regards to the energy market and what has been happening in the energy market? Do you actually ever dabble in commodities like that, or you stay uh, far away from cyclical businesses? <laughs> so I, I owned a commodity fund for a long time and just decided I, I didn't need to own it from a diversity perspective. That even something like an S and P five hundred has got plenty of exposure to the commodity market, and obviously not a direct exposure like you know a, a, a fund. Um, in the in the commodity sector, but uh, I felt like you know there's going to be plenty of energy companies in the indexes, um, and it's enough exposure for me. So I sold my commodity funds probably ten years ago or more. Um, partly what part it was partly because I have no I, I don't have the background to begin to predict commodity prices any more than I can predict gold or Bitcoin prices. Um, yeah. So I've, I, I kind of avoid that. I, I don't, I don't try to do what I know I can't do. <laughs> right. Um, and I want to ask you also at the same time, if, if you would, let's say, talk to somebody who's younger and who wants to dabble into investments, into markets. And we see at least today what me and Bill were talking about, what Bill's actually mentioning is that with this Robin Hood and all, all these applications, what might be different um, between 2008 and now is that I don't think in 2008 the investment was so available to young people. Um, and sometimes when you go into your Robin Hood account or whatever you have, what kind of application, you can see like top movers. And it's like, and, 
and sometimes I, I, I personally see as, as a big risk when people just go into stocks without um, without kind of understanding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question, just to go back to where I started, is as an investor, what would be an advice to, to, to young investors that are coming into this? So when I talk to young investors, the first thing I make sure they understand is the power of compounding and how, mm-hmm. just before we get to specific investment, understand how investing even relatively small amounts of money will grow over time. That's the first thing that they have to understand. They have to understand the impact investment fees will have on that outcome, even seemingly small investment fees, 50 basis points, 100 basis points. It's just math at this point, right? We're not talking Robinhood or M1 or Vanguard or Fidelity, Uh, but they need to understand that. And they need to understand the, the history of the markets, not in any great detail, but that uh, the kind of returns you can expect with a diversified portfolio and the kind of volatility you should expect, right? People get into COVID and the drop in, uh, in the market, and if they don't have any experience with it and they don't, have, they don't understand history, they're going to get scared and they're going to make bad decisions. But the reality is, if you go back 100 years, we've gone through everything from the stock market crash of 29, the Great Depression, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on and on. The markets react to it, but we overcome. So anyway, to me, that's the first thing before you even get into how you should invest. And then what I tell them is your, your, the core of your portfolio should be well-diversified, low-cost index funds. My preference would actually be to avoid the fancy apps. Forget Robinhood, forget M1 Finance. Um, invest in Fidelity uh, or Vanguard. I'd prefer Vanguard personally. You know, there is usually a $3,000 minimum, which if you're literally just starting out can be a bit of a hurdle for folks. Um, but that's where they should start. If it's in a 401k, then it's, it's really easy. Um, and, and that should be the, the lion's share of their portfolio. If they, if they enjoy evaluating companies and they want to invest 10% of their portfolio in individual companies, that's fine. I've personally never used Robinhood. I do use M1 Finance. I, I like it. I'm sure Robinhood's great. I think that's okay. But what most people do, I think, they don't really understand fundamental analysis. They can't read a financial statement, really. They don't know what it means. And so they just invest in companies that they're familiar with, Starbucks, Microsoft, Amazon. And, you know, that's okay with a small amount of money if you're having fun, I suppose. But it's not a good strategy for long-term success. So if some folks really want a fancy app, and I get that, you know, I, I, there, I would go with something more like a betterment, which is very different than Robinhood, uh, where, you know, your money's going to go at a relatively low fee into a, a, a broad uh, diversified portfolio. They use ETFs, Wealthfront's another example, which would be perfectly fine. Um, that's what I would recommend if, they, if, if that was what was of interest to them. Yeah, and I that was a long answer. I don't know if that answered your question. That was a great answer. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Um, no, I think also, but I think in Robinhood, you can also invest in ETFs. Uh, I think you have a, yeah. you can, yeah, it, it's. So you I, could, yeah, you could easily build a diversified portfolio in Robinhood or M1 Finance, and that would be fine too. Yeah, I, I think. Maybe in, actually, maybe cheaper than Betterment, now that I think about it, but yeah. I, I think people pay the price for convenience. I think in these days. Um, yeah. Whatever the first app is you hear about is uh, the one you The problem with. with these apps, I'll tell you the problem, like M1 Finance, one of the problems is 
Um, I think they, they, they push, uh, in my view, um, mm-hmm. uh, investing on, on, on margin, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's a mistake mm-hmm. for, for virtually every retail investor. Um, and I think the whole, like you mentioned this, you know, here are the, 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 the stocks that are the most popular. Mm-hmm. I think it can lead investors down the wrong path. Yeah. But if you're going to just stick with a well-diversified portfolio of ETFs, they're perfectly a, a perfectly fine option. Yeah, I think I think there's an option where uh, on Robinhood it says top movers, and I think that's that's a very bad because recently we've seen Boeing, we've seen all these airliners, Hertz, which is going bankrupt, the, the, was going up, the, the stock was going up. And there's even uh, talk that somebody is maybe uh, setting up these stocks and kind of uh, running them, you know, like investing them in the mo- investing in the morning, and then when you come in, you see, oh yeah, Hertz is up ten percent. Why not invest? But you actually have no idea that they're going bankrupt or yeah. what's the situation in the company. But yeah, that's a kind of a weird. It's good that everybody can invest, kind of, but at the same time, it leaves many people unprotected. Yeah, especially if you going leveraged and uh, if you put a lot of money at least that's my, my kind of opinion i couldn't i i agree completely um so uh also i want to ask you what do you think about the actions of the fed uh, do you have an opinion about that i mean um i, I, I there's they're not doing anything that i that stands out to me as is as as a, a big big mistake but again uh, I, I will qualify that by saying I am not an economist, right? Uh, uh, and, you know, as much as I have strong opinions, I, I try to understand my limitations in terms of what I know and my experience. It's, it's easy to sit back and criticize the Fed. And there have been times when I've thought, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. But at the same time, I have to realize my limitations and it's just not an area that I'm an expert in. I mean, I can see what they're doing, uh, but when I started, when I try to play it out down the road, I think, well, goodness, doesn't this have to create inflation? And um, and won't it, rates rise as a result of trying to eventually battle inflation? And you know, what happens to our federal budget when our growing debt is costing us a lot more than it's costing us today? And you know you can work yourself up into a good deal of angst over all of that, um, but the fact of the matter is, I, I thought this was going to happen years ago. I thought you know all these bad things that I think a lot of people predict should have happened five or six years ago. I mean, I I, I predicted interest rates would rise in 2010, so that tells you how bad I am at predicting interest rates. So you know they're battling a global pandemic and the, the, the economic fallout from that, I, I can't, I, I can't certainly criticize what they've done. It, it, it concerns me long-term, but I suspect it concerns the Fed too. Um, yeah. I don't know what else they would have done differently. I'm sure there might be some other opinions on that. Yeah. It seems, it seems at least in March as uh, the world was thinking that we're all going to hell, it's, it's the end of the world. Um, people pulled out everything. There's the, this moment where they, the, all, all the stocks, all the everything kind of went down, everything went to cash. And I think they were, they were probably looking at this and they were like, okay, we don't want any bank runs. <laughs> and anything is better than bank runs and uh, a market that doesn't work. So they, 
you know, for what it's worth, I didn't sell a thing. I don't know what you guys did, but it's like, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, people talk about history. They look at history. They look at the average returns. And, and they always say in order to, to get those, you can't pull out of the market in bad times. And so we hit bad times. And so what do people do? <laughs> they run for the hills and they pull out. Right. Um, and I've tried to condition myself and, and to arrange my finances, not just my asset allocation, but my entire financial picture to give me enough security that I won't do that. So far, knock on wood, it's worked. Who knows what tomorrow holds? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, well, I guess, do you have a question? Or? No, I'm, I'm good. Um, I guess we can conclude. Um, thank you very much for uh, being with us today. And I know we asked many questions and many opinions with regards to complex stuff and definitely uh, it's, I, I don't even think that the Fed sometimes knows <laughs> what's happening and not only us. Um, and it's, it's tough to, to actually predict anything, but I guess that the, at least the, 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 the feedback that the listener can get is uh, definitely useful. And uh, again, maybe some final words. Um, usually our, our listeners are mostly younger and I believe that a lot of them are currently investing. And I think some of them are also <laughs> investing their government checks and so on, um, is the, what would you say before, let's say before uh, you decide to invest, what's the recommendation, what would you do? Well, uh, the first thing is, I think people should be investing all the time. Even, you know, even if you have debt, it may limit how much you can invest, but I think you should be investing now. The best time to invest was 20 years ago. The second best time to invest is today, right? Um, and think long-term, which is hard to do in the middle of a pandemic or in the middle of you know, social upheaval, but understand that as difficult as these challenges are, they're relatively short-term. Uh, and so you can't let those events affect your investment decisions, even though they're gonna affect the investment decisions of a lot of other people. And as a result, the market's either gonna go way up or go way down, just keep investing. And that's the approach I've followed now for 30 years through good times and bad. And it's worked. Do you think that uh, diversification is the key? I think diver diversification is important. Um, I, I do. And you need to diversify because we're ignorant, right? I mean, if we, if we knew the future, we wouldn't need to diversify. Uh, but we don't. And I think, I think diversification is important for two reasons. One is just because you don't want all your eggs in one basket, right? But the second one is diversify. You always want to set your investment strategy. You always want to keep in mind, will I be able to stick to this in bad times? And if all of your, if your investments aren't diversified, most investors won't be able to stick to that in bad times, right? Mm -hmm. You can imagine having all of your money in one stock, for example. Extreme, I know, for most people. But um, if it started to go down, and take Berkshire Hathaway, one of the best investments, right, of all time, but it's lost 50% of its value several times. Would you have been able to hold it out and you know, stick it out? Warren Buffett did, but I think most folks probably wouldn't have been able to. So diversification helps us get through the bad markets. It's not gonna make it easy, right? We're still gonna go down in value, um, but it's going to, to help um, cushion the fall and keep you in your whatever investment strategy you've, you've, you've chosen. Does that make sense? Experience says yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, well, thank you very much, Rob. Um, can you tell maybe people where they can find you on YouTube as well as the, the door roller? Yeah, so, um, well, first, thanks for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun. Uh, in terms of a website, robberger.com, and it's B-E-R-G-E-R, robberger.com. And you can, to find the YouTube channel, you can just go to robberger.com forward slash YouTube, and it'll redirect you to the YouTube channel. Perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure, and uh, hope we can have a nice conversation again sometime. That'd be great. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you.